I'm going to invite you to turn in, turn to, in your Bibles to two openings of Scripture. John chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 12. John chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 12. We've been uh, teaching for a number of weeks a, a series on the life of God, and we want to tie in what we want to say this morning with, uh, with that as well. So we've looked at uh, John chapter 10 and verse 10 before, but I want to uh, start there again this morning if I can. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus is speaking and he said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now he's talking about the devil. And he said, here's the devil's job description. Here's what he does. The thief comes not. This is his only purpose, in other words. He cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Notice that the opposite of stealing, killing, and destroying his life. He didn't say, I've come to give back to you. I've come to change your destruction. I've come to make alive that which was dead. He didn't say that. He said, I've come that you might have life, because life includes and encompasses all of those things. I am come that you might have life, and you might have it more importantly. Now, we've made this uh, comment before, but I think it bears repetition, and that is, Jesus did not come to bring us a code of conduct. Jesus didn't say, I'm come that you might behave differently. The life of God will make you behave differently, but that's not what he came for. Yet so much of the, the, the world, specifically, particularly the church world, focuses on behavior. Who's doing what and why? Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. In my opinion, the greatest or at least one of the greatest mistakes that the church has made as a whole, worldwide, has been a failure to focus on the life of God. Instead, we focus on do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. If you're a Christian, you'll do this. If you love God, you'll do that. If you love God, you won't do the other. And so much of religion, and rightly so, please understand that I don't categorize Christianity as a religion. Christianity is about life. Religion is about rules. Christianity is about a relationship with God. But so much of religion is do's and don'ts. And and nearly everybody in the world is turned off by religion in some way or another. I'm greatly offended by religion. Because that's not what Christianity is. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. Turn with me now over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, Uh, let's just start reading in verse 1. Verse 2 is what I want you to see, but let's just start in verse 1. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Notice the two things that that, uh, the Holy Ghost mentions here that will hold you back. Weights and sins. Now, some things may not be a sin, but they just occupy your time and hold you back. How are we going to do that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this is Easter, and uh, you've heard some things, many things, I'm sure, more than, than you would normally hear about the, the last week and the, the events of the, the last week of Jesus. 
how that it was just several days before Easter that Jesus is having a, a last supper with his disciples. And at this last supper, he said to them, I've greatly desired to have this, this meal with you. Yet just a couple of hours later, as soon as it's over, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he says that he's pained. He said, my soul is straightened. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. In other words, he said he's at the point of death. Yeah, now, it's an interesting thing. Jesus looked forward to something that would bring him to the point of death. That's kind of unusual, huh? The disciples certainly didn't understand what was going on. I don't think a lot of the church world still understands what was going on. They fell asleep in the garden. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't stay awake to pray with him and help him. But the Bible says that Jesus was sorrowful unto death. He said his soul was sorrowful unto death and he's agonizing to such a degree that he great, he sweat great drops of blood in the garden. He knows what he's facing. He's facing the cross. Now, again, it's interesting to me that it says, who for the joy, talking about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There was something that was getting Jesus through this sorrowful experience, this anxiety that was uh, so great that caused him to sweat, sweat blood. Now, medical science tells us that that's not an impossible thing that, from the standpoint that other people have done it before. It's always under situations or circumstances of, of extreme stress extreme adversity. The only difference is medical science has no record of anybody ever surviving it. And even Jesus had the angels come to strengthen him. Now, remember Jesus said, we didn't read it, but it's over there in John chapter 10. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us, that while he was here on the earth, he said he came to give his life for mankind. But nobody could take it from him. Only he had the power to lay it down and he had the power to raise it up, to take it back up again. So here he's willingly at the Garden of Gethsemane at the point of death, agonizing over the things that are going to face him, the things that are just hours away. Now, what's he agonizing over? I think this is the point where the church stops thinking. Because we think we, the church world as a whole, I don't include myself in this, but many people think that Jesus is just facing the cross, the suffering on the cross, and so forth. And, and, and I don't mean to minimize that at all. It's just going to be a few, a few hours after this experience in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's going to be tried by Pilate. And because, well, first he goes to the Jews, the Jewish council. They examine him. They really can't find anything wrong with him, but they send him to the Romans to do their dirty work. Pilate, the Roman governor, examines him. He can't find anything wrong with him, but to appease the Jews, he has him beaten, he has him scourged. Now, folks, that was not an unusual experience. Jesus was beaten by Pilate, and it was horrible. I know a lot of people, When uh, several years ago, when the, the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, many Christians were complaining about how bloody it was. Folks, I don't believe it tells half the story. I don't believe there's any way you could put on film the agony that Jesus suffered. But it was not an agony that no other human being had suffered in the, in the beating itself. Many people have been scourged by Pilate. Many people died in those beatings. Many people followed up those beatings by being crucified. So that in itself wasn't unusual. I can't stand the thought, and, and I've never really heard anybody say this, but it seems to be an underlying thinking 
in so much of the church world. And again, I think it's because they just don't think. They just take some things at face value and, and, and don't think them through and don't see the importance thereof. But I don't believe Jesus was a wimpy guy. Jesus stood in the face of his enemies and walked through the midst of the crowd. When they wanted to kill him, he walked away. Now, the scripture tells us when he walked away, that doesn't mean he turned tail and ran. That means he walked through their, their midst and they couldn't touch him. Jesus submits his body to all kinds of uncomfortable experiences. He fasts for 40 days in the wilderness. He's at the point of death, searching out the plan and the purpose of God. Jesus was a man's man. He was not some small, wimpy, little weenie guy. He was a real man. So I don't think Jesus is just agonizing over the the suffering that he's going to suffer, which was the same as other people had suffered before. They put him on the cross. Nail his hands and his feet to the cross. The Bible says, tells us the timing of this. It tells us that they crucified him at noon on what we would think of as Friday afternoon. And he died at three o'clock. And there was a darkness that came over the face of the earth for those three hours. Following his death, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and, and asked for his body. And Pilate was amazed that he had died so quickly. So he died a death that other di- others had died before. And he died quicker than others had died. Is that what Jesus is agonizing about in the garden? Is he sweating great drops of blood because he's going to die the same death that the two thieves died with him on either side of him? Add a beating or a scourging to that which others had had done to them too? Is that what he's agonizing about? I don't believe so. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. And he gave up the ghost. He said, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This verse of scripture, the Lord dealt with me about this many years ago. I was reading along and and I had the same idea that it seems to me that other people have. And that is that righteousness is something that God gives to you. He imparts to you. Well, we use words like that, but do we really know what we mean by them? I was thinking of it like God would put a cloak, a coat or a cloak of righteousness upon his children. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we became the righteousness of God. That means that we were made the righteousness of God. I looked at myself and my life and my own failures and my inability to overcome certain areas of sin in my life at that time. And I thought, well, righteousness is something that God says is yours, but not so much. Not from an experienced standpoint, but that's not what the Bible says. Bible says God made you righteous. And here's what the Lord dealt with me about that. From 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said this. He said, I didn't just shirk or wink at the issue of sin and righteousness. He said, in order for you to be made righteous, in order for you to become part of the family of God, in order for you to spend eternity in heaven with me, I had to make you righteous. I had to change your nature. 
I could only do that if I first changed Jesus' nature to sin. And ever since then, I've been looking at it a whole different way. God made him to be sin. I think the most of the church world thinks that God just kind of laid a coat of sin on Jesus for the period of time he's on the cross and said, well, okay, we'll make that count. Not so. The Bible says that God made Jesus to be sin. And that's the only way that he could make you and me righteous. Now, what does that mean? Well, going back to the, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the Bible says that Adam and Eve started off with the life of God within them. But when they sinned, their nature changed. They died spiritually. Therefore, if Jesus went from righteousness to sin, then he experienced the same result. That means his nature changed. That means he spiritually died or died spiritually. Oh, boy, that's a tough problem. Because most of the church world doesn't want to think that. Most of the church world doesn't want to accept that. Yet there's no other way Jesus could be your substitute. Because the price for sin had to be paid. Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me show you a couple of scriptures here real quickly. I'm reading from the King James. Paul said by the Holy Ghost, he said, and without controversy. <laughs> May not have been controversy in his day, but it is today. Without controversy. Here's something that should be without controversy, folks. As far as God's concerned, it's settled. There is no controversy. There sure is in the body of Christ. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, he's going to tell us what that mystery of godliness is. He's going to identify what he means by the mystery of godliness. First, God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus came to the earth as a man. God became man. Second, he was justified in the spirit. Now, you see that word justified? That word justified means to render innocent. How do you render somebody innocent? It's talking about Jesus, certainly. How do you render somebody innocent that was never guilty? Innocence is the equivalent of righteousness in Bible terms. How do you make somebody righteous or give them life, spiritual life, if they were never spiritually dead? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified or made innocent, rendered innocent in the spirit. That means spiritually innocent. Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me read the um, uh, 18th and 19th verses with you. It says, for Christ also, having once suffered for sins, that's got to be talking about the cross, doesn't it? And everything related to the cross. Christ also, having once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, he was the righteous, dying for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
being put to death in the flesh. Now, what what does it mean to be put to death in the flesh? That's the death on the cross. That was the death of his body on the cross, right? But notice the equate, the, the equal, the comparison that it makes here. Now, if you, if you look this up in the Greek, you'll find out that this is a comparative statement, meaning that the two phrases that are being used are equal. In the flesh and in the spirit. King James doesn't translate it that way. It translates it by. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But in the Greek, it's an equal comparison. Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. How? Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. Now, the word quickened is an interesting word because it means to make alive, to revitalize or to make alive. How do you make something alive that wasn't dead? How's that possible? Turn back with, oh, well, let me finish reading here in verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. He's talking about those that were in Abraham's bosom. Notice the progression. He was made alive in the spirit. And then he went and preached to the saints in prison. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. It says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, verse 8, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, please notice verse 9. For to this end, Christ both died, we understand that, That would most often mean, most people talk about the death of Christ as being the death on the cross. Christ both died and rose. That's the raising of the dead. That's the the resurrection morning. But then notice it says a third thing. He died and rose and revived. This word revived... It means to recover life. To this end, Christ both died, he's talking about on the cross, and rose, we understand that to be the resurrection, and revived. He recovered life. How do you recover something you haven't lost? How is that possible? Folks, Jesus is agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane not because of the beating on, that he's going to take in Pilate's court. Not because of the three hours of suffering that he's going to endure on the cross. He's agonizing because of the spiritual death that's going to overtake him. He's agonizing because he's going to be separated from his father. You remember on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How would the son of God ever say that? There's only one possibility. And that's if that was the point in time where he became sin. He became as spiritually dead as you or I were without him. And remember, Jesus said that the sign of his crucifixion would be like Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness. It's always been interesting to me that he didn't say as uh, use some kind of example, even have Moses to lift up a brass or a golden lamb or, or something that represents God. He had when in the wilderness, 
God had Moses make a serpent of brass. A serpent always represents the devil. It always represents the sin nature. It always represents rebellion against God. And Jesus said that just as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. Why in the world is he identifying himself with the Old Testament type of sin and the sin nature? Because God made him sin on the cross. Jesus didn't die as the Lamb of God. He presented himself to both the Jews and the Romans as the Lamb of God. But because he offered himself up, God made him to be sin. That's what Jesus is agonizing over in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's always been interesting to me how that there are two pictures of mankind related to sin and death. One was Adam and Eve, and they just casually disobeyed God and opened the door for death to take over mankind. Yet Jesus facing spiritual death is in agony. He recognizes the implication. He recognizes what it means for him to be separated from God. He knows. Let me read to you something from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a picture of Jesus on the cross. I won't read the whole thing, but I want to pick out a couple of verses. This is a psalm of David. David is speaking prophetically of Jesus, the Messiah who will die for mankind. He starts off this way. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what Jesus said on the cross. We know that, therefore, it's talking about him then, don't we? Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Was God far away from Jesus on the cross? Once he was made sin, he was separated from God completely. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. The night season may refer to the darkness that came on the earth for those three hours that he was on the cross. But thou art holy. Notice the contrast. But thou art holy. Notice on the cross, Jesus is not saying, but I'm your son. I have your life in me. The same life that you have, you've given for me to have in me. Now, there's a distinct difference. God's holy. The implication is that Jesus is no longer holy. Not because of any wrongdoing on his own part, but because God has made him to be sin. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted in thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Notice verse 6. But I am a worm and no man. Notice that the psalmist prophesies of Jesus saying, I'm no longer man. Instead, I'm the sacrifice. Now, this word worm is not the word for worm in the Old Testament. You remember, for example, in uh, Exodus when God gave uh, Israel the manna in the wilderness? God told them, through, told Moses to tell them that if you keep more than you need for one day, then it won't be good. And some did. And the next morning they found it eaten up with worms. That word worm is not this word worm. There's a different word that's used in the Old Testament talking about worms in a general sense. This word worm 
is most often translated throughout the Old Testament as scarlet or crimson. Because this word for worm is a specific and special type of worm that was crushed and the blood of the worm was used to dye clothing. And in many periods of time, it was illegal or unlawful for anybody else to use it. It was stored up and saved for the royals. So the worm that's being talked about here is something that is crushed for the purpose of getting its blood. And that's what the psalmist speaks of Jesus on the cross. He said, I'm not, I'm no longer a man. I'm the worm to be crushed to extract my blood. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of all people. Verse 12, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan. That's the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the high priests and so forth, the Jews that are leading the crowd and leading the charge. Many have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. Notice verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. That's how Jesus died. Jesus died of a broken or a ruptured heart. You remember when the Roman soldiers came to him, the Jews said, we got to get these guys down. It's almost the Passover. It's against the law of Moses for anybody to hang on the cross during the Passover. So let's break their legs so that they'll die quickly. The legs were the only thing they could lift themselves up with to keep from suffocating, which is one reason that crucifixion was such a painful way to die. But they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. So they thrust a a spear into his side. You remember the Bible says water mixed with blood came out? Medical science tells us that the only way that that would be possible would be for the sack around his heart to have ruptured. Now, what caused his heart to rupture? you got two thieves that are there on either side. They're still alive. Their, their legs are broken to hasten their death. Something's going on with Jesus that's not normal. Something's happening to Jesus on the cross that's not a normal and, and your average crucifixion, if there is any such thing. Something's different. Look with me over to Isaiah chapter 52. Speaking of Jesus in verse 14, it says, As many as were astonished at him, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Let me give this to you from a couple other translations. Uh, One translation says, As people were surprised at him and his face was not beautiful so as to be desired, his face was so changed by disease as to be unlike that of a man. And his form was no longer that of the sons of men. Another translation says, Many were horrified at what happened to him. But everyone who saw him was even more horrified because he suffered until he no longer looked human. There are others that I could share, but they're, they're pretty much the same thing. How that he didn't no longer seemed or looked human. Look with me to chapter 53. This is the context that it speaks of Jesus on the cross. 
Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Other translations give that as sickness and disease. But our pain he took and our diseases were put on him. While to us he seemed as one diseased on whom God's punishment has come. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And we have thought him as it were a leper. As one struck by God and afflicted. One says, surely our diseases he did bear and our pains he carried, whereas we did seem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Young's literal translation says, surely our sicknesses hath he borne and our pains he carried them. And we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Look with me down to verse 10. Uh, verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. See that word death? That word death is plural. He made his grave with the wicked and, and uh, well, I, I lost it. Let me get it back. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. See, some people will say Joseph of Arimathea, which the Bible says was a rich man, he put Jesus in a tomb that he had prepared for himself and his first family. And so he made, Jesus made his grave with the wicked and was the rich Joseph in his death. But the word is plural. Deaths. Plural. Now folks, how do you have a plurality of deaths? There's only one answer. Both physical death and spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. How could Jesus be the substitute for mankind if he was not a legitimate sacrifice? He made his grave with the wicked and was with the rich in his deaths because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let me give this to you from some other translations too. Well, let me give you at least one. Young's translation says this. And Jehovah has delighted to bruise him. He has made him sick. Doesn't mean Jesus had cancer. It means God put the punishment of sickness upon him just like he put, just like he made him to be sin. Why? Because sickness is the result of sin and death. When Jesus died spiritually, when Jesus was separated from God, all of the curse of the law came upon him. Sin, sickness, and poverty. So Jesus is hanging on the cross as an unrighteous man, not because of his own action. His righteous blood made him a worthy sacrifice. But all of those things were placed on Jesus. And as a result, Jesus died a death that no man had ever died before. That's what he's agonizing about in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's coming. Disciples had no clue before or after. But he knows what's coming. God has made him Sick. That was the context that we started with over in chapter 52, verse 14, I think it was, where it says that his visage no longer resembled a man. He didn't look human anymore. There is a punishment of God. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. There's a punishment of God that started even on the cross that caused his death to be unlike any man's death ever experienced. Even though others had been crucified, even though others had been beaten. 
No man had or could die the death Jesus died because of his righteousness. Jesus knows this is coming. Jesus knows when he has the Last Supper with the disciples, when he says, this body, or this bread is my body, which is broken for you. He knows what that means. They had no clue. When he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he knew what it meant, even though they were clueless. Jesus knew what was to come. He knew what was to come. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 88. There's, uh, instead of taking the time, and, and if we had the time, I'd like to do it. But instead of taking the time to go back and forth from one translation to another, I'm going to read this from the, the Jewish Bible, the complete Jewish Bible. Verse 1, Adonai, God of my salvation, when I cry unto you in the night, let my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry for help. For I am oversupplied with troubles, which have brought me to the brink of Sheol. Sheol is a, is a name for the Old Testament name for hell, the place of the unrighteous dead. Now, folks, this is instructive, and it's important for us to realize. One translation says instead of oversupplied, it says saturated, satiated, uh, satiated or saturated. In other words, I'm full with sins and troubles. You have brought me to the brink of the place of the unrighteous dead. Not Abraham's bosom. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, for he that ascended up unto the Father, what is it also but that he descended first into the lower parts, plural, parts of the earth. There's only two parts of the earth in Jesus' day. One was Sheol, the place of the unrighteous dead. The other was Abraham's bosom. And the Bible said Jesus went both places. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, some people just want to say Jesus went to Abraham's bosom. That would have been the place of the righteous dead. If that's the case, then Jesus sacrificed his substitute for only those who kept the law. Only those that would have been considered righteous under the old covenant. But if he died for all of mankind, then that means he had to die for those who had no law. The place of the unrighteous dead. I always like to ask it this way because this seems the simplest to me. If you want to know if Jesus was our substitute and you want to know where he went, where would you have gone without him? That answers the question pretty simply, doesn't it? I am oversupplied with troubles, again, verse 3, which have brought me to the brink of Sheol. I am counted among those that going down to the pit like a man who is beyond help. One translation says a man without God. Left by myself among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. King James, I think, says free among the dead. What that means is he's separated from God among those who are spiritually dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave. You no longer remember them. They are cut off from your care. That's where Jesus was. That doesn't sound like Abraham's bosom to me. You plunge me into the bottom of the pit, into dark places, into the depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. Your waves crashing over me keep me down. It tells what happened when Jesus was in the pit of hell. Here's the death that Jesus died. I'm not talking about the death on the cross. I'm talking about the death 
that he experienced, the separation from God that he experienced between the crucifixion and the resurrection. See, when Jesus said it is finished, he's not saying the old covenant is done. Because if that was the case, it wouldn't have mattered where Jesus was. But the fact that we see that he's still enduring punishment in the place of the unrighteous dead. What was finished was his work on the cross, but redemption wasn't accomplished yet. This was all part of what he's agonizing about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, remember, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured these things. But he knows they're coming. Verse 8, you separated me from my close friends, made me repulsive to them. I am caged in with no escape. Most translations translate this as talking about his acquaintances or his disciples or those friends that he had here on the earth. But if you look at the original language, you'll find out that it says, you have separated me from my acquaintance, singular, my acquaintance. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the helper, the one that strengthened him when he was here on the earth, the one that that he was anointed with. That would be a part of spiritual death, wouldn't it? My eyes grow dim from suffering. This is Jesus in the pit of hell. I call on you, Adonai, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Can the ghosts of the dead rise up and praise you? Will your grace be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? That's the place, another word, another name for the place of the unrighteous dead. Will your wonders be known in the dark or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? That's where Jesus is. That's what he knows is part of the package when he goes to the cross and offers his life as a sacrifice for mankind. But I cry out to you, Adonai. My prayer comes before you in the morning. So why, Adonai, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? Well, the answer is that's simple. This is not Jesus really saying, hey, what's going on? It's the psalmist saying, how could something so terrible be happening to one that was of God? The answer is the price for death has to be paid. The price for man's original sin that opened the door to sin and death in the earth. It's got to be paid. And folks, if Jesus didn't go to hell to pay it, you still have to. Because it has to be paid. You either have to suffer the consequence of it or you have to accept someone else's payment in your place. Because it has to be paid. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. There's only one way for us to have life, and that's for somebody to pay the price for death. Spiritual death. Verse 15, since my youth I have been miserable, close to death. In other words, he's known God's purpose for his life all the days of since his youth. I am numb from bearing these terrors of yours. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. This is what's happening to Jesus in the pit of hell. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have shriveled me up. They surge around me all day like a flood. From all sides they close in on me. You have made friends and companions shun me. The people I know are hidden from me. What this means, folks, is that the death that Jesus died... Again, the reason that he's agonizing and sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane is he knows it's not just the the beating he's going to take in Pilate's court. 
It's not just the crucifixion, the three hours that he's going to hang on the cross. But after that, he's going to experience all the terrors and the wrath and the fury of God for all of mankind's sins. God's fury, God's wrath, God's justice must be satisfied or else man still is subject to it. So Jesus has to take it all. He has to suffer the entirety of God's wrath, not just for an individual, but for all of mankind. And that's what he's saying. Your terrors and your fierce wrath have overwhelmed me. That's what he's agonizing about. That's what he's asking his disciples to pray for him for just a little while, just an hour. Help me. But they didn't know. They had no idea. Turn with me now over to Romans chapter 4. We've just read that Jesus was quickened in the spirit, that he was justified, that he recovered life. Let's start in verse 22. The previous verses speak of Abraham and his obedience and his faith to God. And so it says, and therefore it was imputed to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom shall it be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, he's saying, here's how righteousness comes. Righteousness comes not just to Abraham, not just to those of the old covenant. It comes to anyone who believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 25 is going to tell us about that being raised from the dead. Who was delivered for our offenses, Jesus, and was raised again for our justification. I'm reading from the King James. The word for is maybe the worst translation in the Bible. Because the word for is the word when. Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again when we were justified. It's talking timing. What made the difference? We see Jesus in the pit of hell. We see Jesus in the place of the unrighteous dead. We see that he's suffering all the terrors and the anger and the the fierce wrath of God. They come in a, a pounding upon him, wave after wave after wave after wave. His eyes are shut. You know how you can get so tired, you get so weary from suffering that it's almost like, just let me go. I'm ready to check out. There is no checking out for the spirits of the dead, though. For Jesus, it's enduring more and more and more. His strength is dried up. His strength has gone away. He has no help. He has no one to look to. There is no Holy Spirit. There is no comforter. There is no helper. He's alone. Does he know how long it's going to last? I don't know. He knows when the resurrection is going to take place, three days after the crucifixion. Or literally the third day. Even though he died late in the afternoon... On Friday, Friday is considered day one. Saturday, the Passover, or the Sabbath was considered day two. And Sunday was the third day. I know the timing doesn't seem to be work, to work right for us. Jesus literally spent about 36 hours in the grave, the pit of hell. But it, co- it covered, it encompassed three separate days in the Jewish calendar. So he knows that the third day is going to be raised from the dead. Does he know exactly how long? Is there a clock on the wall in hell? I have no idea. But he knows 
that until that time, he is to bear the brunt of the full punishment, the full weight of the punishment of God, wave after wave after wave pounding upon him. The stripes that he took on his back in Pilate's court was nothing in comparison to the anger of God swamping him, crushing him, wave after wave after wave. But there came a moment, a moment in time, when the price was paid, when all of the anger and the wrath and the fury of God for man's original sin, for man's unrighteousness, for the law of sin and death that he's been operating in throughout it from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, once they fell, there came a moment in time when that price was paid, when justice was satisfied. And at that moment, you and I were justified. You and I were made righteous. You and I recovered life. Because someone paid the price for us. Justification. Righteousness was made available for mankind. And the Bible says that that was the instant that Jesus was raised from the dead. God didn't leave him in hell one second longer than was necessary to pay the price for mankind. Then the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. We sang a song earlier about Christ being the victor. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them open. Openly. Made a show of them openly. How in the world did he spoil principalities and powers? Because that moment came when the life of God came back in Jesus. Jesus revived. Didn't mean he stopped existing and now he exists again. That's not what reviving means. Reviving means he recovered spiritual life. Eternal life. Life was imparted to him after he had been made the sin nature of the world. The life of God comes back into him. He is the first begotten from the dead. The firstborn from the spiritually dead. He couldn't have been the firstborn from Abraham's bosom. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Where He had to be somewhere. He was a follower of Jesus, so it stands to reason that he was in Abraham's bosom. And Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead. So God, uh, Jesus could not have been the first begotten or firstborn from, uh, from Abraham's bosom. No, he was the first begotten from hell. The firstborn from the spiritually dead. The Bible says that Jesus was raised and immediately he preached to the saints in prisons. He went to Abraham's bosom. Were they able to see what was going on during that time? I don't know. We have the story in Luke 16 of where the rich man went to hell and he could see over into Abraham's bosom. We don't know if it worked the other way around. But remember when Abraham was challenged by the rich man to send Lazarus over to the other side, Abraham said it's impossible. There's a great gulf fixed. It's impossible for one to pass from one side to the other. You can't do it. It's impossible. But Jesus did. Jesus, after dying the death of the unrighteous and paying the full punishment and the full weight of the penalty of sin, revived. The life of God came in him. Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus was born again in the same manner that you were born again. Same life. Same experience. Same working of the Spirit of God. And he went to the saints in prison. He went to the saints in Abraham's bosom. And he said, I'm the Messiah that was promised. I'm the reason. Your belief, your holding on to the promise of me coming is the reason why you're here. Who wants to go with me? 
The Bible says he came back to the earth, stopped to pick up his body, saw Mary and said, don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. So we know where he hadn't been. Then he goes into heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Jesus entered in one time to the Holy of Holies in heaven, and he offered himself. He offered his blood. He offered himself as the sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice, to provide eternal redemption for mankind. And then he comes back to the earth. Now, the Bible says when he came back to the earth, he appeared to his disciples. Matthew says it this way. He says two words. All hail. Now, folks, we think of the the resurrection morning where Mary comes to him. And most of us think about Mary. Bless her heart. Most of us think of the disciples and how glad they were to see him come back. But folks, remember that the Bible says, we started over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Jesus said, or it says of Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The reason that he was willing to pay the price, the, the reason he was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice, the reason he was willing to pay the full weight, carry the or bear the full weight of God's punishment for the sins of mankind. One and only one reason, for the joy set before him. You know the happiest day, the happiest person in the universe was on the day of resurrection? Jesus. He says, all hail. You know what hail means? Hail means full of cheer. We read it casually where Jesus appears to him and says, peace be unto you. You know, just another day. Uh Uh-uh. No. Jesus shows up. And says, guys, it's me. And they're looking and saying, is it you? Is it really you? And he said, I told you it's coming. Why didn't you believe me? You know what I wish? I wish we could understand the joy that Jesus experienced at the resurrection. We experience joy in a selfish way. We experience joy by saying, Oh, well, praise God, I don't have to go to hell. Praise God, there's an eternal escape hatch for me. Or an escape hatch into eternity, I guess. That's not the way it was with Jesus. Jesus shows up and says, be of good cheer. I've changed it all. Everything is done now. Let me read to you another couple of scriptures. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse... Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, both physical and spiritual, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. When Jesus shows up and says, all hail, he is saying, he knows I have stripped the devil of everything that he has. The power of sin and death is broken. The power of sickness over mankind is broken. The power of sin over mankind is broken. The power of poverty over mankind, the people of God, is broken. John said this. John said that when Jesus appeared to him on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus appears and says, Behold, I am he that was dead but now liveth, and I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and death. 
Now, folks, please notice verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2 just told you who had the power of death. It was the devil. But Jesus took that power from him. Doesn't mean death has no more power. It just means it has no more power over those who accept Jesus as their Savior. This is the joy that was set before Jesus. His joy, the reason that he endured all of this was so that you could experience what it is to be free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But the church has watered it down so much. Church has watered it down to, well, sins are forgiven. The way some people live, it's almost like they could have been their own savior. The way some preachers preach makes me wonder why we even needed a redeemer. Why didn't God just wait for them? That's not the way it is. Jesus did what no man could do. He suffered what no man could suffer. He died what no man could die. To bring life that no man could have without and apart from him. That's what Easter means, folks. It means the joy of resurrection. It means the joy of the breaking of the power of death over your life. If there's any area, if there's any area of your life where the law of sin and death is still reigning over you, there's a part of the resurrection life of Jesus that we're not taking advantage of, but that you can. That's what resurrection is about. It's about you no longer being a part of Satan's kingdom. It's about you no longer being held in bondage to the law of sin and death. It's about you being ransomed into the family of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your great plan of redemption. Thank you for the precious work of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus that was sacrificed for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking upon yourself sin. Thank you for being willing to offer yourself willingly to be the sacrifice for mankind. Thank you for bearing the weight of the punishment and the wrath of God for sin. 